If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched The Shape of Water so that we can study resonance. This 2017 film was directed by Guillermo del Toro from a screenplay by Guillermo del Toro and Vanessa Taylor. Of course, there will be spoilers. And this is a weird movie for spoilers, boy, because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd love it if you could give this show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. Melanie, what have you gotten us into this week? What's the global genre? (laughs) Well, the global genre, I think, is a love courtship. Um, And then I had the secondary genre as a worldview story. And I think the education part of that comes through the strongest for me. But I did find this really hard to determine because each major character has a really strong internal arc. And I think the story was so universal that it dipped into many genres. So I found that very hard to identify the secondary genre. What about you? I agree with you. I I also have a love courtship um, genre for the global content genre. Uh, Secondary, I also think it's worldview. I totally see where you're coming from with education. I think an argument can also be made for revelation. But to be honest, I didn't really drill down too, too deeply on genre this week because there were other things that I was... (laughs) distracted by (laughs) all right shall I dive into dive into the uh the resonant features of this uh this film (laughs) right so for me the shape of water has all the elements of a sublime story as I mentioned you know there are references to fairy tales and fantasy there are spies and elements of mystery Now, Del Toro puts forward a powerful case, I think, and gives us a great example of how writers can use the power of resonance in their stories and be very deliberate about it. Now, in the first episode of this season, I quoted the following from Dave Farland's book, Drawing on the Power of Resonance in Writing, and he said, All successful writers use resonance to enhance their stories by drawing power from stories that came before, end quote. Now, in this episode, I'm going to look at how Del Toro's influences are evident in The Shape of Water and how he has drawn on the power of resonance to write and direct a popular and very successful film. Now, we have to understand Del Toro's a a little bit better to dive into this, I think, properly. So I'm going to read you one of the descriptions of him from his Wikipedia page. And it says, His work has been characterised by strong connection to fairy tales and horror with an effort to infuse visual or poetic beauty in the grotesque. He has had a lifelong fascination with monsters which he considers symbols of great power. He is also known for his use 
of insectile and religious imagery, the themes of Catholicism and celebrating imperfection, and the underworld and clockwork motifs, end quote. So that sort of sets up, I think, and explains a lot of what is going on and what we see in The Shape of Water. So I'll start by having a look at how he's drawn on some of the conventions of fairy tales. So we open the story with a monologue from Giles, who is trying to decide how to tell Elisa's story. And all of the options that he considers are centred around telling a fairy tale. And Giles says, it starts off with, it happened a long time ago, which reminds us of the phrase once upon a time. Giles speaks about a prince in the last days of his reign, which I think is pretty clear at Strickland. And also, this is I found this really fascinating. If the movie was actually made in the 60s, so it's set in the 60s, but if it was made in the 60s, it's likely that Strickland would have been the protagonist of the film and we would have been cheering for his success. But he's not a prince worthy of admiration. He is a man in black, literally and metaphorically. And if you don't know what I mean there, go back and listen to the to the Men in Black episode and also Batman. Um, and then Giles continues to consider a small city near the coast and then he talks about a princess with no voice and that is where we start to see Elisa. Eliza is our heroine and the princess in the story and she is kind of locked away because of the absence of her voice. So she's a bit like Rapunzel, Snow White and also maybe a bit like Cinderella. The story also contains several fairy tale conventions such as there are magical or supernatural elements, there are simple characters, such things like evil stepmothers, knights, witches, so, you know, stereotypes, I suppose, or, or, or those types of characters, and we see a couple of those. There are repeated events, so things happen in threes. There is usually a moral to the story, and it can be centred around beauty, virtues, heroism, things like that. There are talking animals, although this is really inverted in the shape of water, so the opposite happens. There's abandoned children. There's a villain, a very clear villain, a witch or some sort of evil character, and there are mythical creatures. And many fairy tales include magical transformation, so either through a kiss or an act of love where it lifts a curse or a transformation or transforms a person back into their original form. But Greek gods also transformed into animals to break into places they shouldn't be and engage romantically with humans. Now, I'm being very euphemistic here and and that's deliberately so, but um, anyone who's studied those stories will know what I mean. And, for example, you know, there's forbidden loves or love that actually really changes the course of history and, you know, we can look at examples of Guinevere at Lancelot Helen of Troy and Paris. And and I was just, as I was thinking about it this week, I also thought about the popularity of the movie Shrek where there's a twist when Fiona reveals her true troll nature um, and so that they don't have to worry about a human and a troll being in love. 
Both Shrek and Fiona agonise over their physical form and worry about not being accepted by the other. And those stories still resonate today and are very human feelings, I might add. So we can also see how Del Toro consistently highlights the beauty in the grotesque. And this is a feature of Gothic stories. Now, Gothic literature blends fiction and horror with a little romance thrown in there as well. I don't think Gothic stories as a type of story have what I would consider a long history. The first Gothic novel called The Castle of Otranto, a Gothic story, was written by Horace Walpole and published in 1765. And then from there, other classic Gothic novels were published, which include Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in 1818 and Bram Stoker's famous or infamous Dracula of 1897. I am so glad you brought up Gothic lit. I have an honors degree in English language and literature, and Gothic lit is my area of study or was my area of study. Little has changed. (laughs) Uh, And I've always loved Gothic lit but I always thought that I hated horror. I'd always equated horror with slasher films. And at the time, I had no idea that slashers are just one subgenre of horror, and that horror is actually a much broader genre. I still don't like slashers. I'll be honest, though, Gothic Lit did not enter my mind for even a second when I was watching this film. I saw it as an homage to the sci-fi horror films of the 60s, and you already talked about that. And specifically, I was thinking The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes, Melanie, I agree with you. Dracula and the Amphibian Man can both be considered monsters. And Stoker's character is clearly a rotting corpse. He's kind of gross, actually. He's not at all like the Byron-inspired character that John Polidori came up with and that we think of when we think of the film version of Dracula, like the Bela Lugosi character. But in Dracula, the book, the character Dracula, the monster vampire, is the villain. In The Shape of Water, the monster, the amphibian man, is the love interest. And I got to say, Melanie, I wasn't buying this love story at all. (laughs) I thought the whole thing was just weird. (laughs) It's clear right from the beginning that Eliza is different. And the, if anyone is developing an image system in their story, this actually might be a really good film for you to watch because the image of water begins immediately and it's consistent all the way throughout. That I found really interesting uh, throughout the whole course of the movie. So we know that Eliza's different. She's not your average bear. It soon becomes clear as soon as she starts to become attracted to the amphibious man, even when she sees him when he's first brought into the the lab, you're, you're already starting to think, hmm, you know, there's some... Does does this have something to do with the fact that she doesn't speak? And then we see, as soon as we see the marks on her neck, we're like, oh yeah, well, those are gills. So she's clearly either also an amphibious creature or maybe um, a hybrid or something. But even still, it was just weird. It felt to me like bestiality. And the ick factor was very high for me. (laughs) It gave me the creeps. But like, not in a good way, like 
gothic films or horror films are delightfully creepy. I, I love ghost stories, love them to pieces. But it's, it's a shot of adrenaline without any real risk of physical danger. Like I don't really worry about a house being haunted. <laughs> so therefore I can enjoy it because I know it's just not something that I'm ever going to experience. The Shape of Water <laughs> really made me feel like I wanted to take a shower and scrub my skin really hard. <laughs> I have no empathy for the characters, and I tried. I really did. I thought maybe I was just tired when I was watching it or, or something, and therefore it wasn't resonating with me. So I did want to go back and watch it again and give it a fair shake, and I did. And Okay, so it's Del Toro. So right away, it feels like one of these movies that I'm supposed to ooh and awe over, and I'm supposed to love the artistry. And there are definitely things about it that I appreciate, like I talked about the image system. Absolutely. But while I can appreciate it on an intellectual level for certain aspects of the craft, I had zero emotional connection to the film. And this is normal because stories are art. And no matter how good you are, your piece of art is not going to be for everybody. Even Harry Potter isn't for everybody. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that it's a bad movie. It doesn't mean that it isn't worthy of everyone watching it. Because from a craft point of view, there's all kinds of great stuff in here. And that's, Melanie, I think that's where Story Nerd, this podcast sort of distinguishes itself. Because we're talking about the craft of writing, the craft of storytelling from an objective point of view, and talking about the, the techniques that are being used. Uh, we're not doing movie reviews. The Shape of Water doesn't float my boat, but I do appreciate it from a craft point of view. Wow, that's really interesting. So obviously I had a very different reaction to it than, than you did. And I think that that's great, right? And I And that is you know, you mentioned that you don't have empathy for the characters and that that didn't strike a chord with you, whereas for me it did and it reminded me a lot of the types of things that I watched growing up. So, you know, The Man from Atlantis was a series that I really loved and so this idea, um, you know, there's Aquaman and this idea of mermaids or people that live in the water is something that I really and fascinated, not overly more fascinated by than other elements of fantasy or fairy tales, but it really, I do like those types of stories. So um, it's just something, it's interesting, isn't it, that we can see that's not for you, but it's something that I am drawn to and I, and I can suspend a level of disbelief about some of those elements that you don't like because I'm, I, from my experience and background, it's, it's, it's talking to me in a very different way. So let me ask you a question then. Yeah. Resonance, what it's doing is tapping into the past experience of the reader or viewer. And it's, it's sort of, um, not a shortcut, but another way of tapping into the audience's emotions. So we have to then as writers, understand that our audience is going to receive the story through their own. Yeah, well, I think so. And that's where um, Farland talks about the three different types of resonance. And so types of story, so genre is one area that resonates. Like, so 
readers, people know what they like to read and that they're drawn to. So I could not go and write a ghost story because I could, but it wouldn't be very good because I don't, I, I, I personally don't enjoy them. So I don't understand some of the conventions and the things that someone who does read them and loves them wants to see in those stories. So that's resonance from a genre point of view. There's resonance from a personal point of view, so where you are in life and who you are, and that can be based on, you know, geographical, societal influences, age, um, class, nationality, all of those things. So it, so it operates on different levels. And if we can tap into those different levels as writers, then there's a, a power in that. And, and like you talk about empathy, like we, I can empathise with a 12-year-old boy but I've not had that experience. Whereas if someone put up a movie about, you know, and I think we're going to do some uh, movies in the season that we've got, you know, uh, older sort of middle-aged women, that's going to speak more to me from a personal experience point of view because I'm going to relate to that a lot more. And so it's that's there's a, that personal resonance as well. So, yeah, so resonance is looking at all of those things and and it, it is such a broad subject and you could touch in and there are many, many ways to create resonance. Um, it just depends on which ones you want to put or focus on and which ones will serve your story and draw your reader in so that they can read the sorts of stories that leave them f- with the feelings that they want. Yes. All right. Oh, that was a great discussion. I didn't think <laughs> I didn't think we'd go down that path, but that's really good. Right. So I'm going to go on, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong <laughs> now, because I'm going to uh, look at and and look at some of the conventions of Gothic literature or Gothic stories, which um, I did find on the website Alcation, but I also saw a great deal of in the Shape of Water. So here we go. So there are, there are usually features of the setting which are dark or we have abandoned buildings and decay. So we see this in Eliza and Giles' flats which are located above an old cinema that doesn't get much patronage. So the flats are small and there are broken and dirty tiles throughout the apartments. But both apartments also have a homeliness about them and they have warmer colours when compared to the science lab where Eliza works. Now, in that lab where Eliza and her friend Zelda work, that is the most run-down and decrepit part visually of the movie. The green colour of the corridors and the green-tiled room where the amphibian man is chained you know, and he's tortured in there as well, are quite claustrophobic. And you get that feeling of sort of griminess when you're when you're watching the movie. So that's the element I think that relates to sort of building and and environmental decay. Now, gothic stories can tend to romanticize the past. Now the movie is set in 1962, and we see Eliza and Giles watching old musicals. They've memorised some of the tap dancing steps, which they've used to create their own platonic bond and routine. Eliza, who is mute, also fantasises about a romantic song and dance scene with Amphibian Man, where she sings. 
And it's also interesting to note as an aside that whenever Eliza is by herself or when she's with amphibian man, we hear music with an accordion playing. And in some instances, there are songs, French songs with French lyrics. And we associate this with the music of romance and love. Anyway, that's just a little bit of an aside there. Gothic stories also draw on the emotions of horror stories. So they tap into intense feelings of suspense, fear, shock and disgust. So there is a fair bit of this in small but important doses throughout the movie and I think most of the horror elements are delivered by Strickland. He's menacing and his presence overshadows everything at the research centre. He's a torturer of the amphibian man. He creepily comes on to Eliza and intimidates Zelda and Bob constantly. And when he shifts into search and destroy mode, we already know that he will do his worst to Eliza and Amphibian Man if he catches them. Now, gothic stories also feature supernatural beings. So these could be monsters, demons, witches, banshees or vampires, just to identify some. Now, De Toro has had a lifelong fascination with monsters. So the resemblance between the Amphibian Man and the creature from the Black Lagoon is not an accident. So after seeing the creature from the Black Lagoon as a child, Del Toro wanted to see the romance between the Gill Man and the lead female character, Kay Lawrence, succeed. And that is where the idea for The Shape of Water came from. There is a heavy reliance on symbolism in Gothic stories. So for Del Toro, the symbolism is represented through religious iconography and religious themes. The amphibian man's connection to or his resemblance to Christ is one of the most fascinating features of the movie. And Strickland actually refers to amphibian man as God twice. And we don't actually learn about amphibian man's healing powers until he lays his hands on Giles after accidentally injuring him. Now, the laying of hands is representative of healing, blessing and ordination. And amphibian man can also heal himself. But the most powerful and beautiful moment is where he expresses his gift of healing at the end of the movie with Eliza. And just then, I'll take a quick look at the ending and the beginning of the movies because there's a lot of internal resonance that we see just in in those parts of the movie. So they are both underwater and in the beginning Eliza is floating by herself and she's asleep. In the end of the movie she's in the water, we assume she's dead, but she's with Amphibian Man and not only does he bring her back to life but he also restores her. He makes her whole again by opening her gills and he also takes her back to where she belongs, which is in the water. So water is also symbolic of birthing and being reborn and being welcome into communities. So, for example, that's why people or babies are baptised. And if I just go back to Strickland and some of the religious uh, meaning around him as well, he really labours the point about the story of Delilah, 
And he does this to make sure that he communicates his contempt for Zelda and women in general. But I also think that he believes that he is Samson and that something or someone is actually going to be the key to his demise. And, and maybe that's true and maybe that is Eliza in the film. So there, to me there are lots of religious references in this movie. So gothic stories also explore romance and sexuality but in very specific ways. Women are usually repressed or constrained by the expectations of their societies and the men are predatory or are expected to initiate a romantic relationship. Now, this is slightly inverted in The Shape of Water with, I think, Eliza making the first romantic move. So this movie also explores the nature of forbidden love. So Del Toro uses forbidden love to highlight the beauty in the grotesque or the unusual. And Eliza's love goes outside of the usual bonds of human love and into the realm of cross-species love. Now, this highlights some of the societal problems in the 60s, but it also shines a spotlight on the modern-day issues regarding the demonisation of, of what dominant cultures consider to be others. And this links in nicely with Eliza's desperation to save Amphibian Man from being killed. Now, there's one scene that I think is really well done and quite touching in the movie, and that's the monologue scene which is when Eliza is pleading with Giles to help, to get him to help her to rescue the amphibian man. And it, this is heartbreaking because Giles understands that you can't help who you love and he is the one that is refusing to help Eliza who is in the same situation as him. So Eliza is putting forward a case to all of us to see the humanity in Amphibian Man. And if we walk past something we know is wrong, then we are no better than those who perpetrate the wrongdoing. And I think that is part of the point of the movie and that particular scene. Now, Del Toro repeats his examination of the underworld in this movie, but this time the underworld is represented by the clandestine arms of government and the race to collect secrets from each other during the Cold War to gain an upper hand. Del Toro presents both sides as equally repellent and amoral, and he also highlights that it's not all people in the spying game who are evil or bad, and he does this via the character of Bob. And just to finish up, Del Toro taps into the universal feelings of loneliness in a thematic way in this movie. All of the characters are alone or live in their own worlds. Zelda lives with a silent and unresponsive man and Giles is trying so hard to overcome his alcoholism, which we assume is brought on by him trying to repress his homosexuality. Bob is an ethical scientist with mercenary handlers and Strickland has no connection with anyone, including his wife and his family. Now, Valerie, I don't feel like I've done this movie any justice because I could keep talking about it for hours. <laughs> but it's a, I just wanted to know, 
Did you find something unique or different in the structure of the shape of water to draw out this week? In terms of something unique or different about the plot structure? Actually, no. And that's what I find most interesting. Let me explain. For anyone who is avoiding the arc plot structure, because you may be thinking that it's too common and that the reader is going to see everything coming, if that's 99% of the stories that we're consuming, then we want to try and do something new and different and we want to innovate. Awesome. Cool. Here's the thing that we need to remember. As we study craft and as we learn more and more about how to do this job that we're doing, we're learning how the magic trick is done. And when you learn how the magic trick is done, you wonder how, one, you never saw it before, and then you think everybody else is going to know as well. But they're not. If you didn't know it before you studied it, the reader's not going to know it either. They're not looking for it. They don't care. They just want a good story. They don't want to know how the sausage is made. The Shape of Water, I think, is a wonderful film to watch if you're thinking that an arc plot story is so basic that you need to vary from it in order to innovate your story. This is a straight-up arc plot story, but there is absolutely nothing common or boring or cliche about this film. In fact, I really do think that Del Toro made absolutely the right choice in sticking to arc plot because the rest of the story is really out there. <laughs> and <laughs> had he opted for mini plot or quasi anti plot, the whole thing would have been so bizarre that audiences wouldn't have been able to take it in. There would have been nothing for us to latch on to to follow what was happening. Instead, he innovated the content, but kept the form familiar. I think that was really clever. And that's a really important lesson for us to take forward as we work on our own stories. So let's go through the points of an arc plot story. These are all from Robert McKee. And of course, Sean Coyne talks about them as well in uh, the story grid, what good editors know. First, there's a clear causality. And this means that the plot has there's a cause and effect. This thing happens because this other thing happened. It's logical. It's a logical sequence of events. And that is true in this film. Logically, even though there's an amphibian man, the events that happen make sense. We don't have any trouble wondering why this thing is happening or why that thing is happening. Even when the amphibian man <laughs> bites the hat off, uh, head off the cat. <laughs> I, that was that was a moment where I was like, run, cat, run, because you knew it was coming. <laughs> it makes sense because he's he's that's what he does. And it's even set up. Bob even says uh, a, a raw protein or something like that. And you're like, as soon as you see the cat, you're like, yeah, your dinner. <laughs> so <laughs> from a logical point of view. That this works. It could be something as simple as because Eliza is a cleaner, Strickland doesn't suspect her. Or because Giles has a crush on the pie sales guy, he keeps going back to the pie shop. It all makes logical sense. We're not scratching our head wondering why something is happening. 
Okay. The next uh, point of an arc plot story is a closed ending, which means we know what happened. And yeah, we know that Eliza and the amphibian man live or swim happily ever after. Arc plot stories have a linear time. Now, Giles is the narrator and he is telling the story. He is sometime in the present telling the story that happened in 1962. However, the story in 1962 is linear. Nothing's out of order. There's no flashback sequences or anything like that. And Giles, the narrator, we just get his voice. So it's not like we're, it's not even a framing story. It's not like we see Giles as a, an elderly man, um, you know, sitting in a rocking chair telling a grandchild this story. It's just a voiceover. Arc plot stories have external conflict. Yep. The, I mean, what can you say? It, there's guns and everything. There's the heads are being bitten off cats. I mean, you name it. There's there's cattle prods. <laughs> I don't know what else you want. There's car chases. There's everything going on here. <laughs> now, in saying that, here's one of the things I really do appreciate about this movie. The conflict is clearly external, but the characters have clear internal conflict as well. Eliza, Giles, Strickland, and Bob, they all have internal conflict. And I really appreciated that. So if you're if you're trying to flesh out your characters and wondering how you can add depth to your characters or how you can dramatize the internal struggle of your character, The Shape of Water is a good movie for you to watch. Arc plot stories have a single active protagonist, and that's clear here. It, Eliza is the protagonist, and she is definitely active. Contrast this to Macon in The Accidental Tourist who is passive. They're 180 degrees apart, these two characters. And finally, arc plot stories have a consistent reality. This is the drum I'm going to keep banging a lot because we need to remember it. I've already said that we can set our stories in any kind of fictional world we want and the reader will go with us and they will. We just can't break the rules. And here we have Del Toro certainly creating a very different kind of fictional world and he does stick to the to the rules. I was going with him on that journey. I thought, okay, this is a world where there's amphibian men. All right, let's keep going. I accepted it. But the amphibian man and what he can do, what he can't do, how people interact with him or don't interact with him, it all stayed within his world. And that goes back to, to the logic of the whole thing. Now, I want to talk about something that I referenced back in the Lego Batman episode, because I think it bears repeating. And this is in reference to those of us writing stories with protagonists that have a significant internal arc or change. We've got two options. We can write a mini plot story like The Accidental Tourist, because those do tend to concern themselves primarily with the internal world or struggle of the protagonist. But we can also write an arc plot story where the primary conflict is in the outside world, but we can choose to ramp up the internal conflict and dramatize it using the hero's journey, because really the hero's journey is all about externalizing the internal conflict of a character. That's what it does. 
So when choosing what form of story to use, one of the things I want to encourage you to do is consider your career goals. And this is where you have to be really honest with yourself. You don't have to tell anybody else what they are right now, but you've got to be honest with yourself. Are you dreaming of selling lots of copies and being on the New York Times bestseller list? Are you dreaming of earning a full-time living as a writer? If not, that's cool. If so, that's also cool. But consider what Robert McKee has to say. And again, these are quotes that I've pulled from uh, McKee's book, Story, pages 62 to 66. McKee says, As story design moves away from the arc plot and down the triangle toward the far reaches of mini-plot, anti-plot, and non-plot, the audience shrinks. Most human beings believe that life brings closed experiences of absolute irreversible change that their greatest source of conflict are external to themselves, that they are the single and active protagonists of their own existence, that their existence operates through continuous time within a consistent, causally interconnected reality, and that inside this reality, events happen for explainable and meaningful reasons. Classical design, which is the arc plot story, displays the temporal, spatial, and causal patterns of human perception, outside of which the mind rebels. Classical design is not a Western view of life. When the audience senses that a story is drifting too close to fictional realities, it finds tedious or meaningless, it feels alienated and turns away. This is true of intelligent, sensitive people of all incomes and backgrounds. The vast majority of human beings cannot endorse the inconsistent realities of anti-plot, the internalized passivity of mini-plot, and the static circularity of non-plot as metaphors for the life they live in. And again, this goes back to what Lisa Cron says in Wired for Story, we are wired to turn to story to teach us the way of the world. McKee says that great storytellers have always known that regardless of background or education, everyone consciously or instinctively enters the story ritual with classical anticipation. In other words, the arc plot structure is what we think of when we think of story. Therefore, to make mini plot and anti plot work, the writer must play with or against this expectancy. Only by carefully and creatively shattering or bending classical form can the artist lead the audience to perceive the inner life hidden in a mini-plot or to accept the chilling absurdity of an anti-plot. So, with all of that in mind, what I think The Shape of Water really highlights for us is that the arc plot structure is highly malleable. The form itself is solid, but you can use it with any type of story. Even one with an amphibian man. <laughs> and just because we want to create a protagonist with depth and with an arc, it doesn't mean we're automatically pigeonholed into a mini plot story. We really can use the arc plot, which will appeal to a greater audience and open up the possibility of higher sales and revenue for us. So if you're watching this movie, pay particular attention to those four characters that I mentioned, Eliza, Giles, 
uh, Strickland and Bob look at their internal world and how it is being revealed within the arc plot structure. So it's not just the protagonist here who has depth and all that interesting stuff going on inside her, even though she doesn't say anything, which it fascinates me. We have these other three characters, the primary antagonist being one of them with depth. Really interesting. Okay, Melanie, what have you got for our action step this week? So this week, I want you to think about the stories you loved while growing up and then look at your work in progress and how are you drawing on the power of resonance in your story? Can you see the influences of the early stories you loved come out in your work in progress? And that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss Nashville. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find out about books to help you read like a writer, visit Melanie on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill author or find out more about her at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory does not have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.